0: This is Golden Nuggets podcast on whynow.co.uk. I'm your host Al and I'm a PE teacher of 15 years. This podcast is about interviewing key influencers in education and giving them a platform to deliver their story. I want to explore why and how they do what they do to better inform parents and pupils on their education journey. Here with Richard Shorter. Hi Richard, how you doing, mate? Oh, mate, great to see you. I'm good. So, uh, yeah, if you just want to introduce yourself, tell us a bit about yourself, where you know, where you're from and what you've done, stuff like that. Uh,
1: so, I have the great privilege of wearing two hats in life. I, I live in East London, in Romford, in Essex. Uh, Baptist church minister part time in what I suppose would be commonly described as quite a deprived uh, housing estate. Uh, outer city housing estate and then I also run a business called Non-Perfect Dad which engages with parents, uh, supporting parents to get the best out of their young people and I primarily do that through schools and sporting organisations and I've got three kids myself and a chocolate Labrador.
0: (laughs) I love Labradors, they're (laughs) they're definitely the friendliest
1: uh, dog aren't they? Friendliest and hungriest. Yeah. Um,
0: so it brings us on to uh, the purpose, the purpose of coaching the parents and their influence on children's education and wellbeing. Um, so it's interesting you mentioned about having your own kids there. Um, and also, like, parenting advice is sort of slightly sort of... Uh, it's, it must be a very niche market you got there. I'm not sure too many other people actually do it. So tell me a bit about what you're doing
1: with the kids. Well, I think, I think the first challenge with parent engagement is that parenting is a very emotive subject mate it's it's a very difficult subject to to support parents in because parents uh, I find through either working and supporting with social services or um, engaging parents in the activities that I am are automatically wary and defensive because to be honest with you we haven't given parents a very positive rap you you know when you see things like you know David Becker gets in trouble for kissing his daughter in the media uh, just as one example parents are are quite highly scrutinized I think uh, in their behavior and that makes parents quite defensive I took the a full mentioned chocolate labrador to some puppy classes when he was younger and some of the dog owners they were talking about uh, some of the challenges they were having with their children and i just gently suggested well look, I've got a course coming up for parents why don't you come along we'd really unpack some of these challenges you're talking about here and the parents immediately went oh no no no, we, we don't need that uh, and I thought it's fascinating because we're all paying a fortune to have somebody shout at us about our dogs and how to look after our dogs and i like we all love our dogs and our dogs are important but the same people who are willing to go to dog training classes weren't willing to go to parent engagement and so I think that's part of the major challenge of engaging parents is, is the natural kind of suspicion and awareness that parents have about being engaged. So I've spent the last 20 years I started off by running a skate park as a young youth worker, thinking that I was pretty cool and trendy and noticing that kids went home, which is an obvious uh, realisation. But in your early 20s, you know, you're really fixated on what's in front of you. And I noticed just the incredible impact that parents had on the outcomes of young people. Uh, For the kids who came to the skate park. And in my early 20s, I realized that I needed to be far more holistic and far more supportive of parents and helping parents thrive and feel encouraged in their role so that we would get better outcomes for young people. Uh, And that has started me on this long journey of trying to engage with parents in a way which doesn't feel like they're being lectured or told off or put in a box, but feels like they're being encouraged, supported, and that's really, really honest. Because parenting is ridiculous subjective Uh, there's lots of grey in parenting and giving parents permission to explore that grey the subjectivity and the natural challenges have come that that come with parenting
0: so you mentioned about the skate park in your 20s (laughs) if we just go rewind slightly before that like what was your experience like at school and your own upbringing and stuff like that with who influenced you and how did they have an impact
1: May that's a great question. Um, so I'm dyslexic, uh, not massively, but enough that it impacted my education. And I, I think I struggled at school as a result of that. I struggled uh, struggled to fit in socially and I struggled to fit in academically. I found sport was one of my main loves. Uh, and I found I've got a good mouth. Um, you know, I'm good at standing up and presenting. So there was a, a church minister who started to use me uh, 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 mentor me in my mid-teens and then there was also the local hockey development guy who also started to mentor me as a hockey coach and so I had these two great guys who were supportive um, to to helping me thrive in that character in those character traits of leadership and and really self-confidence and develop that self-confidence. My parents were incredibly supportive of me doing well at school um, and I think that well meaningless well meaning um approach to their parenting meant that i i felt quite um that it was really really important that i got a set of exam results and i think that accidentally just put a, a huge load of pressure on me um and uh, you know my mum particularly bless her just was on the school all the time just being my champion to make sure that I got the right learning support I, I needed and the extra time in my exams but that would also mean at home that she would kind of crack the whip quite hard on on homework and working etc um and I think that meant that I I struggled with with making errors feeling quite vulnerable about that so when these two gents one in the in the church world and one in the sports world came along and gave me that encouragement to thrive and weren't too worried about the spelling mistakes in my work uh, were able to kind of look past that and help me thrive that was that was a massive um massive inspiration for me and then between school and university I took a year out and went to worked in South Africa for a year doing youth work and just fell in love with hanging out with young people and supporting young people and and helping uh, young people be honest about where they're at and move forward uh, and then that led into me coming back to the UK doing a degree in youth work and then opening a skate park with a church in my in my early 20s. How was South Africa? Well, South Africa was amazing because it was a couple of years after apartheid. For those sports fans, it was the year that the British Lions won out there. So I'd spent a year taking loads of abuse off the South Africans that they were going to beat the Lions, and then we won, which was just like this pinnacle as a young man who loved his rugby beautiful country obviously incredibly complex set of needs I think as a young man I grew up thinking everything was black and white and South Africa was the first time in my life I remember feeling really really challenged by um by the spectrum of life there that there was. So you know we uh, the house I lived in with a very middle class family would have a maid and that did my head in as an Englishman I didn't quite, couldn't quite get my my head around that. I went to visit churches in townships and saw just incredible generosity from people whose home uh was was below the standard of what my bikes would live in in a shed at home in England you know and just seeing people be more generous than I was and realizing that these complex issues didn't have quite the neat tidy answers that you develop as as a kid in in essays Um, and actually that really seats into my own parenting now I really try and stretch my kids I try to help them see the world not in black and white I really try to give them a different perspective on things try if there are bad people in their life try and see that those bad people also have some good Qualities. If there are good people in their life, also see that those people aren't to be heroes and put on pedestals, that they're just normal human beings, they have flaws and, and whatever. Not that I want to make my kids feel bad about everybody, but I, I don't want them to kind of get into this really simplistic answer stuff. I want them to be a bit more analytical and recognize the complexity of how life fits together. And that, to be honest, linking into parenting is one of the things I love doing with the parent engagement because parenting isn't a do this, do this, do this, and you'll get this outcome. It doesn't. It doesn't work like that partly because of home context school context cultural upbringing what we know is there's a bunch of principles that will help kids thrive and my parent engagement I hope is about helping parents connect with that but often schools and sports institutions will give parents a simple ABC parent plan um, and and I just often look at those and I think yeah but I can think of all the reasons not to do that for good valid reasons so for example in the sports world you'll hear people say to parents never criticize your child I think well my son had. A a big row with the referee. Of course, I'm going to criticize him for that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to let him get away with, with disrespect. I mean, I'm not going to be nasty to him about it, but we're going to have an honest conversation about it. So, straight away, the kind of do's and don'ts lists for parents, I think, become um, unnecessary. Obviously, in the extremes of kind of smacking your kids or, or just doing everything for your kids, you know, but we're talking the kind of middle ground where the majority of parents exist is trying to find a way of exploring that grey. And I certainly think South Africa was that first time where my head was mashed because I couldn't... It, it, the answers didn't fit into the neat, tidy boxes that I had previously assumed that they did. And so that brings me on to, like,
0: challenges that parents face, mm. um, especially today. Um, how do you think they differ from today than when you were growing up with, with your parents?
1: I think, firstly, the, the challenge around mental health... Um, is massive. Not that I think the mental health challenges have necessarily changed. Obviously, we have the online stuff, which has a contribution to to young people. But I think... Um I think our generation of the first out of it really have a uh, vocabulary narrative around mental health stuff. But I still don't think we've quite got the answer of how to deal with mental health properly yet. So we're, we're good at talking about it. Whereas I think my parents' generation weren't so great at talking about it. So, you know, my mum's twin brother died when they were both 40 of cancer. And um, I think my mum and dad did a pretty good job at kind of managing the emotional journey of that. My dad's dad died when he was seven. And my nan sent my dad to a birthday party On the same day. Now, there's no criticism right now for that because that happened a long, long time ago in culture. That's what you did. You just swept death under the carpet. You didn't let children know about death. And now I think. So we have had a kind of emotional maturing, and I think parents now have a vocabulary around mental health challenges. I think parents are a lot more open to understanding things like self-harm, self-esteem issues, anxiety, but I don't think we've still quite found the right tools to support parents into doing that. So we're we're okay at talking about them, but I don't think we've found the, the right tools to help parents explore how to resolve those issues.
0: Do you have any tools in your uh, toolbox to help?
1: <laughs> Do I have any tools? Well, I mean, for me, I think it's about conversations. I think um, I call myself a conversation architect and I think it's I think it is genuinely about conversations and I think I think it's it's the long haul of parenting conversations to help with those things I think it's about genuinely trying to be open and honest about the right things but being authoritative about the right things as well so it's about having boundaries but within those boundaries having a ton of freedom for kids to be able to explore and ask questions so like if you came to my house we talk about sex for example quite openly uh, with all our children it's age appropriate because we've got a 10 year old a 13 year old and a 15 year old but we have always tried to stay ahead of the curve of culturally talking about sex and relationships and what that means because not because we think those things are bad because uh, I think sex is an incredible gift and we want our kids to have a, a wholesome perspective on it and also have a very good openness about it when my child when my daughter had her mother's and daughter's puberty assembly, I went along with my daughter because my wife was working and I was incensed that it was just a mother's and daughter's assembly, assembly. So I went as the only dad into this puberty assembly and my daughter gave for her me her pack of sanitary towels that they all get given as a gift and things like that because again I just want to I just want conversations mate. I want conversations around what's happening and at the moment my kids still talk to me and are quite open with me. Uh, I also want really good tapestry of people around my kids. So I am ridiculously intentional. All my children have mentors. Um, We're very, very intentional about the family that we see. I mean, we see all my family, but we're very intentional about seeing good influence family. We're very intentional about being honest about the things we don't know. So, for example... Uh, at dinner time I will say oh dad's having a real challenge with business at the moment I haven't fixed it I'm feeling a bit down about it to be honest what do you think what do you think I could do what do you think because I don't want to model that dad emotionally was always alright because i talk to you quite bubbly now and I'm quite good at switching on bubbly rich uh, but I want my kids to know that rich isn't always bubbly that sometimes rich is a bit flat and this is what I'm going to do to manage my mental health uh, we're recording this at the time of shutdown and I think it's going to be really important that parents particularly in this time are encouraged to be honest with their kids kids about what is going on and and honest about the fact that we just don't know some of the answers to this. And and those skills will carry on beyond um, kind of corona shutdown because, you know, when granny gets cancer or an adult gets cancer or somebody's made redundant or whatever, we need to be able to say to kids, actually, adults have got this sorted. There are support networks for adults to process these challenges. So don't worry about mummy and daddy in this. We've We've got friends and support networks that we can manage, but we still don't know the outcome about this. And I think... Um, So these tools around having honest conversations do not for one second mean that children aren't going to have mental health issues, but for me it's about trying to have enough conversations and openness so that kids should they have challenges, have enough ways in, enough people to talk to. I wish my kids would talk to me about everything, but I'm not that silly to think that they're always going to come to dad or they're always going to go to mum. So I hope they go to their mentors or their aunts and uncles or their godparents. So we try to put a really good structure. We're also really intentional about our kids' friendship groups in the sense of when we meet a kid that we think is really good for our kids, we really go out of our way to make sure they get to come around the house, they get to play, they, we get to know the parents' um, some, trying to form some good old-fashioned community in that. In fact, my son's 15, and you know, we talk about alcohol at the moment, and he's not sure what how, how he feels about alcohol, but he's going to parties where kids are getting drunk, and he's... That's not his behaviour at the moment, but he doesn't quite know how to respond to that. And I, as a parent, feel a bit weird about that for 15-year-olds. But we we had arranged, although it's going to be postponed because we're in shutdown, to go round to his best friend's house. And his best friend's dad and me and uh, the boys were going to sit down and kind of have a tasting session, not to get them smashed, but a tasting session of the different drinks so they could understand what they tasted like, understand the alcohol level, and just treat it normally. Now, again, that, I'm not saying that that means my kids won't get involved in alcohol down the road or whatever, but we're, we're just trying to have good, honest, open conversations. It's interesting you say about, um, I suppose, you, is that
0: normalising then, trying to normalise things? I think it's trying like to normalise. You, you, you mentioned, like, you know, you're going to the assembly with your daughter yeah, yeah. and you're being the only father there. So, obviously, <laughs> when one person do, does it, it then becomes normal for a dad mm. to do that. Yeah, you yeah. mentioned about drip-feeding Uh, Like in in France, they drink at 14. Um, Even in this country, I think if you're with a parent in a restaurant, it's 16. Um, So normalising drinking so that they understand levels. Is that something that you would encourage in terms of a strategy?
1: Well, I think it's contextual. Again, this is this is what we're doing. I mean, I think there's lots of good evidence that says that kids are allowed to drink freely at a young age. That, that that's really unhealthy for them. Uh, so, what we're trying to say, but there is a our kids have an inquisitiveness about it. Um, they're going to parties where they've got access to it. Uh, we are still keeping quite a strong line on. Actually, you don't need to go to a party and get drunk. And if you go to one of these parties and come home drunk, that we're, we're going to have to have a conversation about what that looks like at this age. But if you're curious as to what it tastes like and what the alcoholic volumes are, I'd still rather equip you to do that. Um, so, so it's so it's. So that's, it's that's, can I just can I can I interrupt yeah, you just there yeah. quickly? So
0: your kid comes home drunk, right? Yep. And uh, you said you got a fifteen-year-old daughter. Yeah, th- thirteen-year-old no, son.
1: Fifteen-year-old son. Fifteen-year-old
0: son. son. Thirteen okay. daughter. Ten daughter. Okay. So what what happens if your thirteen-year-old daughter comes home and she's had a, f- a few beer, you know, a couple of beers at a house party, and she's drunk? What would you do?
1: Well, I think I think in the first instance I wouldn't make a big song and dance of it. Then I hope I wouldn't make a big song and dance of it. Then I think the real temptation in any of these in any of these issues and and you know these are really emotive moments for us as parents is I hope I wouldn't make a big song and dance of it then I hope I would let check she was safe and well and then say we need to talk about this and then as a family we would decide on consequences on it if we felt it was a consequence worthy kind of punishment um I think I think the challenge is to help our kids live in what psychologically we call safe uncertainty, which is a Barry Mason model. If people want to Google it, there's loads of really good stuff out there, which is which is about allowing kids the safety of a strong identity in who they are as family, but the freedom to explore a bit. But it's not boundaryless freedom. Boundaryless freedom, I think, is just as unhelpful as very, very strict boundaries. <laughs> and, and it's trying to measure those gaps and like you know we've just been talking about a 15 year old there'll be people listening to this and oh 15 that's fine but 14 it isn't and there are others who are thinking rich you're doing that at 15 but you shouldn't be doing that until they're 16 and this is the problem because it kind of becomes and each child is slightly different whether they're slightly more mature or immature i've done enough youth work now to know that there are plenty of 15 year olds i wouldn't let have a drop of alcohol but my son is i would say pretty average in his levels of maturity i would say he's advanced or or or, you know behind but some kids just because of development that's not because they're They'll catch up, you know. But and and so I think for me the challenge is to support parents to have the confidence to have these conversations to go against the trend. So when my son goes to these parties, he knows straight away I'm going to this party. Here's the my parents' telephone number because he knows our bottom line at the moment is we want to talk to the parents who are hosting this. We want to know exactly what type of environment you're going to, uh, so that we. Together can map that out. He has an exit strategy. He texts us something. We will come and get him. You know, we. I mean, thankfully, he loves his sport. Absolutely loves his sport. So he doesn't want to be out late on a Saturday night because he's playing sport on a Sunday that he's really, really passionate about, and that's his first love. Um, That may change, and um, that that will be different. And I think the challenge for educational institutions is how do we support parents in having the confidence to either buck the parenting trends um i mean you know another classic my kids have never really, I, I own an xbox i'm the only one who plays it and so, my kids have never got into it i'm quite happy for them to play it but, but i do know in certain you know i'll go and do home visits as a church minister or as someone working on behalf of the local social services and i will see children playing computer games that are massively uh will have a rating massively older than the the child and and i think that uh, and the challenge is always to parents, oh, that game's pretty brutal at times, and they're 10 years old and it's an 18, and it's, do you know it has this, this, this in? And they're like, yeah, but everybody else's parents are doing it. Everybody else's, so everybody else's parents let their kids do it. And so I think the challenge for parent support is to say to parents that you can buck the trend. There are a number of people who feel uncomfortable about this uh, and um, kind of go for it. And when, when my 15-year-old had his 15th birthday gathering at our house, only half a dozen friends, but we had a number of parents ring us and say, oh, I hope you don't mind, um, we'd like to know what's going on. And I was like, no, I do exactly the same. And then we had another mum who my son had been to the birthday party ringing. Oh, I know you're not going to mind me ringing because you rang us. And actually, all of a sudden, you have these people who are a bit nervous actually do want to put these boundaries in do want to explore this and it's it's you find that there's more of a group of you than there are than the perception the cultural perception that you're that you're on your own and I think uh sporting and school institutions could be doing more a lot lot more at coaching parents to have these conversations and coaching parents to have permission to set these boundaries and to be to be to go against what they perceive are the trends I mean, a lot of
0: the ideology you talk about there, and and some of the practices you've mentioned, mm. um, I'm fascinated with. Mm. Uh, being a parent myself, but with a lot of these things, I suppose I always think, well, that's great, but what impact have you actually had? What evidence have you actually had in terms of positive yeah. contributions to society? Because a lot of people can talk a great game, but until <laughs> they actually do something, until they actually do something, and then they've got some evidence for it. It's just another person talking about it, right? With a, with some evidence, if they've got research. So,
1: mate, totally. And I think, uh, I think you make a good point here. And I think part of the challenge of parenting is, you know, there is an um, an element of hi- fluke, or here by the grace of God go I, or however you want to kind of phrase it, that there are that you could do the best parenting job in the world and something could still happen in your child's life, whether it be a moment of trauma or they mix with the wrong friends or they get, uh, you you know, that could lead to a moment of crisis or a crisis behaviour developing or whatever that's totally outside of your control as parents. So I think the real challenge... um, there is lots of evidence there talking about kind of authoritative parenting. So it's not dictatorial and it's not too free. But there is quite a lot of evidence out there about the kind of, I suppose, authoritative boundary setting that I've just been talking about. Um, I, I do a lot of work with England Rugby and I've just finished doing a series for their England under 18 parents. And those parents have seen me three or four times over the last couple of years. And I just simply asked them on the, the feedback form, uh you know what has changed in your parenting behavior as a result of um of seeing rich and I there are about 10 parents at this meeting who had seen me before there were about 20 parents but only about 10 had seen me before and this is what the, some of them said if if and I so I asked them have you seen me and if yes what's changed uh one parent better listening I tried to let him talk this is another parent sorry I tried to let him talk about his ideas rather than telling him what to do um To be more, what's changed? I'm far more patient with my child when communicating with my son. We listen to our son more. Understanding the world of injury, we're more prepared to listen. Um, So that's kind of some of the the feedback that parents have reported back. Now, a great study would be to go back to those boys and say, oh, your parents say they're better listeners. Is that true? How how has that impacted your sport? And I guess that is part of the challenge. And, you you know, let, let me be honest, I have worked delivering parenting sessions for the local authority in my local community as a church minister the local authority and I partner up on that sort of stuff and there are families that I still work with 10 years on who still have the same challenges that they had 10 years ago um and is that because my practice is poor no the parenting courses we used are evidence-based parenting courses for for behavioral change but some people just take a long long time uh, or have enough of their own wounds to to be able to do it but certainly the the sports world are feeding back that parents uh, are getting better at listening and like how do we start this conversation talking about mental health I think we have to open up conversations we need to be able to do that so if parents are saying I'm I'm getting better at bearing in mind those are 18 year old boys so those boys are about to leave home so so it should be a far more two-way conversation at that point about what's happening because those kids are going to leave home shortly and some of the horror stories I hear are things like um, an 18 year old who has phenomenal rugby talent going to live in a rugby house But the the academy ringing me and saying, Richard, we really need your help with this because the child can't cook, can't clean, can't budget, can't look after themselves, and they're an absolute liability and it's affecting their rugby now. We need you to come and have a conversation with the parents and us to help us have a plan to go forward for this 18 year old. So that's a family that well meaningly, but have not had quality conversations and provided boundaries for that kid to thrive and. Try out new skills and develop new stuff in um, They have Out of a well-meaning love Modicoddled that child And now that kid is at a chance of uh, Or I, I can't remember the outcome of that one Because it was a couple of years ago But a risk of whether they lose their actual place In a, in an academy which was part of their dream Because the conversations at home Haven't been robust enough
0: I suppose it brings me on to uh, you pr- Probably maybe Resilience Um cool. Do you think you can? Do you think that that's something that comes from within, or do you think you
1: can train resilience? Oh, mate! Million dollar question in this generation. I I'd like to ban the word resilience um, because, and the reason i like to ban res- resilience is because I believe resilience is an outcome of a set of six or seven habits, and and not um, and not a tool itself. So so one of my children was having a, a difficult time at school, and we sat down. At parents' evening, and, and their most loved teacher looked them in the eye and said, You know what? You just need to get more resilient. And I was like, What the hell does that actually mean? <laughs> you know, you've just told a teenager, you've just told a teenager they need to get more resilient. At Our little church youth group the other day, I said to them, kids, Tell me what resilience is. And two out of the 10 kids there could even come up with a half decent definition of what resilience is. Mm. But, but here's, the, here's the really sad thing, mate their primary schools and secondary schools had the word resilience in their school values. And they didn't even know what resilience is. So for me, I think... And hopefully you heard me talking about some resilience skills. Firstly, being open and honest about your emotions. That's a resilience tool, I think. Having a good network of people around you. Dad's really pissing me off today. Actually, I'm going to go and talk to my uncle or my mentor or my granddad because my parents have fostered relationships with that. Um, I... I have been set strong boundaries. So actually I'm safe in these strong boundaries and I know where to operate and where to not, to not operate. Um, I have learnt skills of self-evaluation so, so in this uh, shutdown time, we're having a weekly plan as a family, as you know, because I've, I've talked about this before, but we've got a weekly plan and every Friday we're evaluating that plan. We're evaluating that plan really honestly. What have we done well this week, kids? What could we tweak? What could we get better? Um, I, think that's, I think that's part of resilience. I also think we're talking about what's inside our control and not inside our control. Having a mindset that's able to do that, I think that's part of resilience. I think a massive part of resilience is being able to go, some days I just don't feel resilient resilience see, sometimes resilience is a bit like the mist you know you just can't quite grasp it no matter even if you really want to it just and that is i think just sometimes the mind does that to us sometimes we just don't feel very resilient even if we have all the resilience tools in the toolbox some days some people aren't resilient and we see that in sports teams don't we we'll see sports teams who have been absolutely doing amazingly you think they they're incredible they're, they're undefeatable this season they're really united they're a real team and then they'll play a game and it just evaporates And there's no real rhyme or reason why it evaporated that week. And then they're back on track the following week. Because just sometimes, just as human beings, sometimes we're just, I don't know, we're just not there. Um, And so I think I'd want to have kids who understand luck. And sometimes you're just unlucky and not feeling it or able to do it today as well. So if all that leads up to a toolkit that we might call being resilient, great. But I don't think, I don't say to my kids, well, you need to get resilient. So today we're going to understand that sometimes just some kids are lucky and some not my son got concussion the day before a saracen's trial he was in the form of his life playing rugby um i think he might have been good enough to get selected to go up to the next bit but that's just a dad speaking but he got concussion and you know the conversations make that's that's just just bad luck you you know you may get another chance and you may not but you know what that is that's life buddy um and that's the fact that he or. got to that level i mean the mate, fact that he oh, yeah, got yeah, to yeah, that yeah, level yeah, yeah. i mean yeah, no, wow it's, no, it's, no, it's no, it, is, it is brilliant uh, but he was hungry for the next level and and something that was just totally outside of his control bad luck mate you know if you want it keep training keep working hard for it it may turn up it may not um but be okay with with bad luck happening and i think you know we're we're in the this shutdown process right now a lot of people's lives are going to be turned upside down because of this and and it's got nothing to do with them all the best planning in the world all the best preparations um all the best rainy day money may not help people get through this even though they've done all the right stuff because it's just it's just what it is it's it's life is is unpredictable so i think if we put together that set of tools and help coach parents to have those conversations at home, then I think we'll see more resilient kids. I think we need to be seeing it earlier. I mean, I tend to work with kids when they get to teenagers and outputs. I think these are conversations that we need to be having at younger age groups. I think we need to be having conversations with schools. I go into a lot of primary schools and, and I see primary school teachers well-meaningly sometimes just do too much for parents and kind of slightly modicodal parents. We don't let kids deal with the negative outcomes I mean I uh, so so for example uh, in one of my local primary schools if parents haven't sent the the trip permission letter back the kid um, you know the school are ringing those parents first thing on the the morning of the day of the trip to try and get like verbal permission rather than the kid missing out which is really good um, well-meaning stuff for the parent for the kids sorry but what that means basically teaches the parents is we never have to worry about the permission slip ever again because they'll they'll ring us. Chase they'll chase yeah. us and I, and I get for education establishments trying to do the right thing by kids I really really get that. that's that's tricky I did something in a year six class recently they all had to do something with a bit of string we were doing something creative and thinking about getting ready for secondary school and, um, and the TA just went round and cut up all the year six kids bits of string and I was just like they're going to secondary school in like three weeks time okay we've got the summer holiday break but literally in three weeks of schooling time they're going to be in secondary school no one's going to be cutting up bits of string for them then so I think I think there's loads of great opportunities for schools to support parents in what they do um, I find out sadly sometimes parents are really wary of schools and schools are really wary of parents but actually if they could just come together hear each other's story a little bit and see that that some of the habits that parents don't like about schools and schools don't like about parents actually both sets of tend to embody those. And together, if we could have honest conversations, we'd actually get better at helping our kids thrive and produce kids who have um, better resilience. I'm going to use the word even though I wish it was banned, but but yeah. It's
0: interesting that we've we've touched on language yeah. and uh, timing of conversations. Uh, Body language Mm. uh, When to interrupt When not to interrupt When to listen When not to listen uh, When you should actually put your foot down uh, (laughs) And say something Um, uh, Not a lot of those things are actually talked about I've not really been exposed to much In terms of the sort of non-verbal communication Mm. Do you discuss any of that stuff With uh, any courses that you do?
1: Well actually in... um one of the questions in the book that I've written is to get the kids to ask the parents, uh, sorry, to get the parents to ask the kids, what's my body language like when? And actually to get the kids to, to feedback. Because I think part of the challenge of body language is not just necessarily... Um, whether we're trying to do good body language, you know, whether we're sitting with our arms folded or whatever, but actually how our children interpret that body language. So I was talking to a, a tennis dad and, and their son, and I was helping them have this conversation. And the, the the son said, Dad, when you're really cross with me playing, when you get really cross with me, you take your hat off when I'm, playing, when I'm playing tennis. And every time I muck a serve up, you get really cross with me and take my hat off. And the dad was like, I never take my hat off because I'm cross with you. I take my hat off because my heart's going out to you and I'm just like oh I know he's going to be disappointed about that so so you've got this kind of double mirroring thing going on that the dad's like oh he's <laughs> going to be disappointed about that and the, the son is seeing that dad has taken his hat off thinking dad is angry so son is more likely to miss the next serve so dad's likely to take the hat off again this total miscommunication so in some ways I don't know I mean I suppose the classic body language stuff there's some question marks around the science as to how much people do or don't do that but what is certainly clear in my world is that children interpret their dad's dad's and mum's, sorry, their parents' body language um, very, very clearly uh, through their own experience of that body language. So I'll remember my dad. My dad never said a word on the side of the sports pitch. My dad is a very gentle, gentle man and never would never speak out of turn or anything like that. So he doesn't get a word in edgeways when we're all gathered together, bless him. <laughs> but he, he would stand on the side of a rugby pitch watching me or my brother play and or, or occasionally my sister play sport. And he would always, he'd always be cold. My dad always got cold. So he'd always you know, shrug his shoulders and he'd... And he'd and he looked miserable. He just looked miserable. But he has the same look now if he goes out with his grandchildren. But you ask him how he is, and suddenly his face will light up. It's oh, yeah, this is brilliant. What a great day. Um, and, and as a kid, I don't really remember my dad on, on the side of the pitch at all because I was too busy enjoying sport. I certainly never remember him being critical or nasty about us playing. But... Um, so I think for me the conversation is around how we help parents and kids have an honest conversation around that body language. And how we help them look at each other and hear one another. So one of the habit things that I do, I run a my wife and I run a boys group together that's helping boys work through some um Uh, behavioural challenges in in their school context. So we get them all to give each other compliments. And we get them to look each other in the eye, to give each other a compliment, and then to turn to the next person and give the next person a compliment. Sorry, we get them to say thank you first. And uh, I get told by teachers, oh, they won't do it because they're autistic and they won't look in each other's eyes. And I I know that is genuinely an issue for some children. But actually, we've, we've been running the group for four years. We've never had one kid not just enjoy looking each other in the eye and saying, you're really good at, and I thought because they were like nine ten eleven year old boys they'd go, "I like your football team, I like your haircut, they just jump straight in with oh, last week when I was upset, you really helped me, and I really appreciated that, and these boys just they just get used to practicing this way of connecting with one another and hearing one another and so our homework to them always is go at home and do compliments at home and, and when the parents come in we have a few sessions when the parents come in we get the parents to do compliments with us as well and but the parents can't do it they can't look each other in the eye <laughs> they can't look their boys now the because it's just it's just to, to give one another a compliment to feel good to look you know it's, it's something that's slightly alien to our culture a little bit now um uh, and actually, it's just it's just a really good thing to do. And do you know what? We do compliments now. And my kids sometimes moan about doing that. Oh, do we have to do compliments tonight? But when they get into it, they actually really, really enjoy it. They actually really, really <laughs> enjoy it. Um, I suppose
0: it brings me on to uh, sort of looking for the future.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, obviously, uh, everyone would love to know what the future looks like. <laughs> what do you think the, fu- the future actually looks like for parents, in you know, who have got really young kids or they're about to start a family and and stuff like that? How do you think the future might look?
1: Well, that's a great question. I think for institutions that that are willing, I think if we could see institutions partner with parents far more, I think we could start to get really excited about the outcomes for those parents and for those young people. Uh, I think that we're starting to see snippets now where institutions get that parents are massive partners in what we do. That This day and age where we thought that if a kid went into school that they were the sole property of the school for those hours or the sports club for those hours and that the, the school would do everything with those kids, I think is now gone. I think there's general acceptance that the home environment has a significant impact on mindset, mental skills, and that the school can also have a significant impact on that as well. Not diminishing that, but because of the attachment that young people have with parents, that that impact is bigger. And so I think... I'm, I'm getting really excited about a number of the institutions that I'm working with who are starting to get that if we can be coaching and supporting and encouraging parents to reflect on um, how they connect with their children. The parenting course that I used to deliver uh, uh, was just uh, it's just brilliant called Strengthening Families Strengthening Communities run by an incredible American doctor who's uh, passed away recently and his name just completely escaped me but she used to get parents to reflect on three questions what from your home of upbringing are you going to adopt what from your home of upbringing are you going to modify and what from your home of upbringing are you going to reject and those three simple questions are some of the most loaded questions on the planet because if you came from a home that you feel really loyal to you can really struggle to feel like you might criticize it on on modify what you're doing if you came from a home you hated you're going to really struggle to see some of the good that they do and even in some of the awful homes that I go through there's still some snippets of good parenting going on there and so what are quite simple questions are really good questions for parents to reflect on I try and get my own kids to reflect on that now when we have Christmas oh I wonder what you'll do differently at Christmas I wonder what you'll change I wonder what you'll modify I wonder what you'll accept um and 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 or adopt sorry and so I think for me the challenge for institutions and the future of parenting is I hope is going to be a far closer collaboration and a collaboration which has at the heart of it um the reality that we need each other to support the growing of a healthy child and a healthy young person, still recognizing there's stuff outside of our control and there 's still luck involved in all that process, I think that the future of parenting we 're going to see uh, we 're going to see parents um, included more in those educational processes not being teacher because you know teachers have their expertise i don't I, you know i 'm not a teacher i don 't have that expertise uh, my teacher's teachers have the expertise, but in partnering to help develop those mindset skills i 'm hoping we 're going to see organizations develop better ways of connecting and supporting with parents around that at the moment we have a lot of communication between schools and home uh like you know online i can look up whether my kids have been in school to, well i know they've been at home today because we're in shutdown but before shutdown you know i could see what classes they've signed up for what percentages they've got on tests and things like that i think a lot of that information is actually pretty useless i actually think what well, i think the next evolution of that information is around helping parents See what mindset skills they've used and how they might develop those mindset skills and how home might support that taking of risks, the challenge and moving forward with um, with the school together so that together they can work on stuff together. So, for example, my youngest is a bit of a perfectionist. Uh, she probably got that from me. I'm a bit of a perfectionist. Uh, and, and she likes to get 10 out of 10 on everything. And if she hasn't, it's a bit of a disaster. She's quite bright. And so, you know, in her class, she's in the top kind of bracket of her class. So she doesn't get enough wrong at school. At home, we try and stretch her. We try and give her tests where she's going to get 5, 6 out of 10. But then there's going to be a stretch there. She's going to feel slightly exposed so that she develops an attitude and hunger to be stretched but at school they're not doing that and so we're trying to come together in partnership with the school to say listen we we want our youngest to be stretched because at the moment if she thinks she can get 10 out of 10 and she doesn't try anything that she's not going to get 10 out of 10 of we can see that down the road that's going to be a problem and so we're having this conversation with our my daughter's school around how we stretch her and how we see that happen I'm hoping that school's will be more proactive in seeking those kind of questions and responses. I recognise schools have a lot going on, but I think the outcomes for schools and more importantly young people will be massive if we can give parents the support to be having these conversations and less black and white parenting to, to allow this subjective middle. I'm bringing my kids up you're going to bring your kids up slightly different to me neither are right or wrong both are going to have incredible outcomes both are going to have challenges and it'll be our kids therapists will have to work through that probably but um... <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I what I love as well um,
0: what I've started doing definitely when we <laughs> before this lockdown was uh, having the conversations in the car the car journey mm-hmm. which you've mentioned before with your book and stuff conversations for, for a journey and um, I mean, it's such a lot of time, isn't it? I mean, I mean, it depends where you live. You live in London, you're stuck in the car for quite a long time sometimes. <laughs> so it can be really effective. And I think actually as a strategy, like when you talk to people, like after five o'clock, for example, there's no point in me having a serious conversation with anything to do with work because it's just I'm knackered, I'm making yeah, poor yeah, decisions. Yeah, yeah. And so like when you have those conversations is probably quite important as well as how you have them. Mm. Uh, when do you think is the most important time?
1: Well, I think there are two things I want to say. That is, you know your kids better than anybody else. So I know one of my kids, if I ask them a question in the morning, I'd just get full grunting teenager and no joy. And if I asked the other one the same question, I'd be far more likely to succeed. Um, I think the second point is um, uh, there sometimes just isn't a right answer. You can ask the same question exactly the same way at exactly the same time the following week and you get a very different response from your kids. Uh, but I do think it's about us being emotionally mature and thinking about the context. So if our children have just been stretched, challenged, or done something that's physically or mentally exhausting, it's unlikely that that's going to be a good time to have a good conversation with them. Now, you might need or want to say to them, so after a sporting fixture or after they've done an exam or after they've been away on a residential, I mean, that's often hard. because You know, they go away for a couple of days or they go to see their mate or whatever, and they're like, how was that? And they're like, oh, it's was fine, whatever. But when they're younger they might talk more but when they're a bit older i think it's a case of going look i can see you're knackered can we talk about this on wednesday um do you mind if we just have 20 minutes about this on wednesday particularly for those children in the sports world which is where i mainly dwell i do say to parents you know after training camps or selection camps or after big fixtures parents want to talk about it the kids i think want to talk about it at some point but the evidence seems to say not straight away with parents or the majority don't want that so I think it's a case of acknowledging the events happened but saying, can we talk about this later? Or can you come and talk to me about this sometime this week? So you're putting it on an agenda, an imaginary agenda, but you're being emotionally mature about it and not asking that to for them to unpack that when they're emotionally stressed. And I think um, and I think you might have to ask a couple of times. And I think sometimes depends on what's going on and how they're feeling about things. Sometimes you'll get a great answer and sometimes you won't. And that's okay as parents. And you can loop back around and go... I mean, I I I tend to make a joke of it most of the time. I'm like, listen, you know, your dad, just I just I just need to know this stuff, or I can't sleep at night. You know, so is there a chance we can talk next week? Talk on Wednesday, because I've already lost three nights' of sleep. You know, I just I just try and make it playful and try and draw on that that playfulness. Um, and except that sometimes I'll get a one or two word answer and except sometimes I'll get a really lovely 20 minute 30 minute conversation and that's not personal I think that's the main challenge for parents in asking those conversations is the response you get is not personal it's not them being rude it's just them processing the emotions I think particularly with teenagers we'd solve half the world conflict issues if parents would ignore the first sentence out of a teenager's mouth sometimes because you know I'm called stupid and idiot and all that lot. and even when I'm called stupid or whatever I'll still ignore it and I'll walk away and I might come back when later when they come and say, listen, I know you are frustrated then, mate, but that's not the way to talk. I don't mind you being frustrated, but let's talk about, can we talk about how you talked about it? Um, so again, I do have boundaries around this. I'm not, you know, it's not just a free-for-all in the shorter household, but it's trying to recognise that when a kid is emotional, and you know this is adults, when you're emotional, like you just said, after five o'clock, I'm not, I'm no good for talking about anything. And I put boundaries in with my friends and family and work colleagues going, oh, I can't talk then, i will be knackered. So, so I think, um, Think about what they've just done. Is that going to have an impact? Uh, try and ask a question rather than make a statement. And and don't take the response personally. Loop back around. Put it on the agenda and loop back around to it later on. Um, that's, sort of, that's really nice that you gave that uh, summary
0: for three things in terms of strategy. One thing I would like to say is if you were to summarise in three words, though, advice for parents what you try and build upon, what three skills would you say for, for parents? Three words, if you can.
1: I probably would say be courageously honest in your conversations. So honest, honesty? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Have a bit of courage. Courage? Uh, Yeah, and have the conversations. So, um... you know... Increased uh,
0: dialogue. What can you say for that? Yeah, one?
1: increased dialogue. The number of kids that I speak to, the number of parents I speak to, and they're like, oh, yeah, we haven't actually talked about that. Like, Why haven't you talked about that? <laughs> yeah. Why on earth haven't you <laughs> talked about that? Yeah. Because it's awkward. Because it's awkward. You know, um, you might want to uh, name the elephants in the room. Mm. You know, don't be afraid as parents of so gently and lovingly talking about the elephants in the room. Mm. Because we're the adults, so we've got to hold that adult position of talking about the adult, the elephants in the room. You know, during the shutdown time, we're all going to find out what the elephants in our rooms of our relationships are, as we're all stretched in each other's <laughs> spaces Yeah, a little... well, look, own it. Yeah,
0: mate. Look, thanks so much for coming on the pod anyway, and um, pleasure. Yeah, some really great pleasure. advice anyway. So, uh, especially for my little boys and, and my wife as well. So, uh, <laughs> look, I really appreciate, it and uh, yeah, look forward to uh, yeah speaking to you soon anyway brilliant thank you very much for having me all right cheers rich see you mate